For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we come to you tonight and I pray in some way that we will be able to grasp just exactly through this story and through this event tonight. How much that you really do love us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 26. We're on our journey through Jesus' last 24 hours before his crucifixion. And tonight we find ourselves a little bit after midnight, probably in the wee hours of Friday morning, there in the Garden of Gethsemane on the side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus and three of his closest friends have journeyed deeper into uh, the garden, then the other uh, eight of his disciples that are there with him. And as Jesus goes and he prays one time and he comes back and he wakes those friends up and he goes and prays a second time and he comes back and he wakes those friends up and he goes and he prays a third time and then he comes back. And each time he's praying this cup, this wrath that I'm about to take, this separation, Father, that I'm about to experience from you. If you could take this cup from me, great, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he comes back the third time and he's beginning to interact with those three closest friends. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47, it says, while he was still speaking, while he's visiting with them, they notice in the distance some 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 light, some torches, no doubt, that are beginning to make their way out of the Kidron Valley, up the side of the Mount of Olives, there to where they are. And while he's still speaking, behold, Judas appears, one of the twelve, and he came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. There are some uh, famous personalities. There are some famous people that we find in the Bible that are famous because of some pretty spectacular things that they've done. For instance, when we think about Moses or a.k.a. Charleston Heston, right? I mean, that's really who we think about. But when we think about Moses, we think about that great Event where he parts the Red Sea to lead the children of Israel and emancipate them from their slavery. One of those others would be Daniel and how that he slept in the, the den of lions and nothing ever happened to him. Or what about David? In so many aspects, we remember David, but especially he's the greatest giant killer of all times. But just like we have those those great and those those remarkable personalities that we find in the Bible for good reasons, we also have personalities in the Bible that we're very well familiar with, and it's because they didn't do some things so well. For instance, we're very familiar with Cain, Abel's brother, and we know him more than anything because he murdered Abel there outside of the Garden of Eden. Another person that we're very familiar with comes to our mind is the character Jezebel. Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, she she marries an Israeli king and her number one goal is to lead the children of Israel away from serving the one true and living God and to serve the all. And as a result of that confrontation that Elijah has with her prophets, we find her trying to kill Elijah and to eradicate him from the earth. 
But probably the most infamous villain or the most infamous person for making the wrong decision in the Bible that we know of is our character tonight. And his name is Judas. Now, I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to kind of rapidly fire this question at you. And I want you to think about it seriously for just a moment. So are you with me? Okay, we're all engaged tonight. I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to just kind of think through that with me. In your entire life, have you ever met a person named Matthew? Mark, Luke, John, not Acts, sorry, got that out of the way, right? You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, Andrew, James, Nathaniel, Philip, Thomas, Judas, Judas. The only time I personally have ever heard the name Judas used as a name outside of the New Testament is the name of the English heavy metal band Judas Priest. And literally, a majority of their music is espousing the doctrine of atheism. The name Judas is just not associated with anything good. That's just not a name that we use for our children. And there's a reason for that. The reason we don't hear people using the name Judas. Now, the Beatles kind of went to the side and used right... Jude, right? You know, from those things from there. But the actual name Judas, we, we, we find it. And I think there's a reason for that. Because in John chapter 17 and verse 12, Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. Now, if you were to look up the word perdition, here would be the definition. The state after death wherein exclusion from salvation is the realized fact. Where a person, instead of becoming what they might have been in Christ, is lost and ruined for eternity. Now, what we do know about Judas Iscariot is that he's one of Jesus's original 12 disciples. And we know that he is the one that betrayed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss. And in doing so, at least in Christian circles... He has become one of the most detested people or definitely one whose name you just do not associate. I mean, we don't name our kids that I I don't even know people that name their dogs Judas. They have more more hope for their dog than they do. And it's just it's just a name that's just associated with something bad. But as I've studied in preparation for tonight, and I, I agree with Chris, I thank you so much for your attendance and for taking this journey with us each night. As I've studied in preparation and getting ready for this series, Jesus' last 24, I've realized that there are a lot of us that are just like Judas Iscariot today. As much as we want to distance ourselves from him and as much as we want to not associate with him, there's a lot of us that are a lot like him. I want to give you two examples of that truth. The first one would be when I look at Judas's carrot and I look at society today, I want you to know that anyone can fake a relationship with Jesus Christ. Anyone can fake a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's something that fascinates me. I've got to tell you about this passage of scripture that we read when it came to Jesus being in the upper room with his disciples in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. So look there with me in verse 20. This event surrounding this last 24 and Jesus's death, burial and resurrection is always just every year when I read it, it just kind of grabs my attention. In verse 20, it says, now, when evening came. 
Jesus was reclining at the table. So we know we're at the upper room and we're at this period of time. And we're right at that time of the institution of the memorial of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And they were eating and he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they, each one, began to say to him, Surely it's not I, Lord. That is fascinating to me. After being virtually inseparable for the last three years, we talked about there's no doubt that they've eaten hundreds, if not thousands of meals together. And when you eat meals with someone and you sit at the table with them and you talk about your day and you talk about what's been going on and you begin to share your heart and it's just kind of the natural outpouring that happens at a meal. Not only have they eaten meals together, they've done ministry together. They've, they've been on these, these journeys where Jesus has sent them out by twos to go out and to share the fact that the Messiah has come. They've done ministry together. They've eaten together. They've been together almost nonstop for three years. And when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, their response is, surely it's not. Me, Jesus. At face value, what that says when I read that is none of the disciples had any idea that Judas was the one that was going to betray Jesus. I believe if you would have put all of the disciples in a in a lineup and you would have brought in an eyewitness to all of the ministry and all of the meals and all of the interaction that all of the 12 disciples would have been having during the three years of Jesus's earthly ministry. And you brought that eyewitness in and you lined up the disciples and you said, choose which one of these disciples is going to betray Jesus. They wouldn't have been able to do it. No one would have known who to pick. It would have just been some kind of guess. If the disciples themselves that had been so intimately involved with each other had no idea who was going to betray him, then on the surface, no one could tell. Personally, I believe as I read that and I look through scripture and I look at this dialogue with Judas and Jesus during the Last Supper, I don't believe there's any way that the disciples were even picking up on the fact that Judas was going to betray Jesus. And I say that because in, you, in Matthew, there in chapter 26 that you have in front of you, look at verse 47. I believe it was up until the moment of the arrest, maybe even past that time, before it really became understandable that Judas was doing what he was doing to Jesus. But Jesus, because in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 7, it says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve. It doesn't say, Matthew doesn't say, behold, Judas, that betrayer, Judas, that son of perdition, Judas, that really bad dude, he came up and he betrayed Jesus. He doesn't record it that way. He said, Judas, one of the twelve, one of the disciples. They, they don't appear to have any idea on the surface that Judas is anything more than what he says he is, and that's a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you know why that was the case? 
Because outwardly, anyone can fake having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Anyone can do that. For three and a half years, Judas saw the same miracles that the 11 other disciples saw. For three and a half years, he heard the same teaching that all of the other 11 disciples heard. He performed the same ministry that all the other disciples performed. But here's the problem. Judas never transitioned from a physical relationship with Jesus Christ into a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. Judas never transitioned from a physical relationship with Jesus Christ into a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. Tonight you may be here and you can say, I have a physical relationship with Jesus Christ. I have physically been baptized. I have physically been a Sunday school teacher. I have physically been a deacon. I have physically been a pastor. I have physically been an adult Bible fellowship teacher. I have physically been a member of a church as far back as I can remember. But the question is, have you ever spiritually confessed your sins and asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior and transitioned from a physical relationship to a spiritual relationship by calling him to be the Lord of all in your life? Have you ever transitioned from this head knowledge of Jesus into this heart action because he's changed you and transformed you? Have you ever established a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ? What some of you may be asking right now is, well, Pastor, how do I know? I've been raised in a tradition where it has a lot to do about what you do and how you act and where you go and the places you do and all these things. How do I know if I've transitioned from just this physical relationship into a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says this, test yourself. He doesn't ask me to test you. He doesn't ask you to test me. He says, test yourself. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? He says you test it. And if you pass the test, then you're a Christian. You have a spiritual relationship. If you fail the test, then you just have a physical relationship and you're just like Judas Iscariot. And nobody can tell the difference from what you look like on the outside. I want you to listen to this test. John, in 1 John chapter 3, he gives us the test. In 1 John chapter 3, he says this, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. For now that he appeared in order to take away sins, that's what you know. Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not require, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
and taking on the form of a bondservant. He willingly came to this earth and he willingly took on flesh and he willingly lived for 33 and a half years on this earth, showing everyone that he indeed was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared. He came to this earth. He left heaven in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. And no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, we have to clearly understand the test that John is talking about here or right now your head's just spinning. Those of you that while ago when I said, do you have a spiritual relationship? You're like, yeah, I've got a spiritual relationship. I've asked Jesus to be my savior. And now I'm listening to this and it's saying, if you sin, you're not of him. And man, I know I'm a sinner. And what is this talking about? Well, the test that John's talking about in this passage of scripture and in these verses, he's specifically referencing habitual sin. Habitual sin in the same area over and over and over and over. And he's saying habitual sin is an indicator of the absence of salvation. Are you with me tonight? A habitual sin is an indicator of the absence of salvation. A habitual sin that we know is contrary to God. We know God's word says, don't be a part of that. We know God has said, I do not like that. And we say, oh, well, I like that sin. I want to do that sin. That sin brings me satisfaction. So, God, I really don't care what you say about it. I'm saved. And as long as I'm saved, you can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to keep doing this sin because I want to do that sin. John says habitual sin is an indicator of the lack of true salvation. The Holy Spirit through John is not saying if we make a mistake. He's not saying if there's these momentary lapses in judgment where we give into the flesh that we're not saved. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is. If there's a sin in our life that we've said, God, this is my sin and you have nothing to do with it. And there is no conviction. There's no struggle spiritually taking place when you participate in that sin. A sin that is clearly against God's truth, as outlined in Scripture, John says in these verses, salvation is not a part of your life. That's heavy, isn't it? Was Jesus heavy a few hours earlier when he was in the garden and he was sweating drops of blood because he knew he was going to the cross for our sins? We're in a heavy moment in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. I want you to listen to how Paul describes this test in Romans chapter 6. Turn over there with me tonight. Romans chapter 6, you may see something in there that you want to underline or you may want to highlight. Because today we live in this society that says, you know, well, society says this area is okay in my life. And this society says this is what I ought to do with this difficulty in my life. So I'm just going to do what society has to say and God's just going to have to deal with it. I know it's sin. I know it's wrong. I know it's not right. But I'm under grace. And as long as I'm under grace, who cares what anybody else says? Because grace is enough. 
Paul tells me God's grace is sufficient. So what does it matter if I don't do it exactly like God says? Well, John says habitual sin, intentional sin, knowing it's against God. It's a pretty good indicator of the, that you failed the test. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter six. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father. So we, too, might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We would no longer be slaves to habitual sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he now lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore. As a result of all of this that I've just said, trying to help you understand what salvation is, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but are under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Thus says the Lord. What are all these verses teaching us tonight? How in the world does this tie in to the last 24 hours in Judas's life? Because the example of Judas and what he's given us tonight is this. A person can be physically connected with Jesus, but not connected spiritually with Jesus. A person physically can look like they're with Jesus, talk like they're with Jesus, be around things like Jesus, go to the places like Jesus. They can do ministry for Jesus, but in the end, they're not connected spiritually To Jesus. Judas was always at church. Judas was always singing spiritual songs. He had KSVJ on his chariot radio, I promise. (laughs) Judas was also always taking care of the church's money. Judas was always at Jesus' side. He had a great physical relationship with Jesus. But he didn't have a spiritual relationship with Jesus. 
He knew about Jesus, but he never knew Jesus. And just like Judas, anyone can fake a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's another example that I take from this. Just like anyone can fake a relationship with Jesus, we see that in Judas's life. No one can shake Jesus's love away from them. I want you to hear that tonight. We've just dealt with the, the, the blunt truth of whether or not we're saved. And no matter where we find ourselves tonight, you cannot shake the love of Jesus away from you. I don't care where you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how you've messed up. I don't care if you had a physical relationship with Jesus, but not a spiritual and you did something really bad. I don't care if you have a spiritual relationship with Jesus and you did something bad. You cannot shake off the love of Jesus because it is an everlasting love. Has anyone ever hurt you? I'm fixing to get in your business. Has anyone ever betrayed you? Has anybody ever broke your heart? I think you can relate to what Jesus is experiencing when Judas gives him a kiss on the cheek. If you can say yes to those questions, has anyone ever hurt you? Has anyone ever betrayed you? Has anyone ever broken your heart? And if you look back to that person that did that to you, if you're like me, that person was somebody that you loved. That person was somebody you trusted. That person was somebody that you could not believe in a million years that they would betray you the way that they did. It blew your mind that, that someone who loved you and said they cared for you and they trusted you could suddenly turn 180 degrees and go in the opposite direction and betray you, and it broke your heart. You know why it's always a person that we love? Because we had never let an enemy get that close. When somebody's an enemy, we know not to trust them. When we know someone is a pronounced enemy, we know not to let them into the inner circle. When we know someone's against us and not for us, we're not going to be vulnerable to open up our home to them and open up our heart to them and open up everything. But we're just not going to do that. So an enemy never breaks our heart. It's always the person that we trust. In John chapter 6. It's near the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. In John chapter 6, we see this play out. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with, with the five loaves and the two fishes. And then later that night, his disciples are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and he walks on the water out to them, and that's when Peter walks out, and he has that experience with him. They go to the other side, and all that magnet, uh, multitude of people that had been on this side of the Sea of Galilee that he had fed the day before with five loaves and two fishes, they go around the Sea of Galilee, and the next day they show back up. And so Jesus takes the event from the previous day, and he introduces them that, hey, I want you to understand I'm the bread of life. I, 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 I did that miracle. I did that 
that performance in front of you to get your attention, to let you know, I really have been sent from God. I'm here on God's behalf. I am God's ambassador to this world. I really am the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And after concluding this complete and concise sermon on how he is the only way to heaven. This is early. This is this is back at the beginning of his ministry. In John chapter six and verse sixty four, it says this. Jesus speaking after the events that transpired after him walking on the water, after him preaching this message about being the bread of life better than anyone could ever present it. In verse 64 of that chapter, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was that would betray him. Do you see that? Are you following me tonight? Before Judas ever entered the Garden of Gethsemane with the soldiers and kissed Jesus on the cheek, three years earlier, Jesus already knew that he would betray him. Well, of course, you know, he's God. This was just playing out this master plan that he wound up this clock and he just put it into motion. That was what was supposed to happen. He was still God in human flesh. All God. All human. Let me ask what you would have done if three years earlier you knew you had somebody in your circle of friends that was going to stab you in the back. In three years. Would you open your home up to them? Would you open your heart up to them or would you immediately go, hey, I live by the ad adage. You burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice and shame on me. I am not going to give you that opportunity ever again. Would you have put people into place that would have kept a really close eye on him? And when he went to go talk to the Sanhedrin, you would have known all about it so you could set it up. I believe any of us in that same position, we would have taken care of him. We would have never spent as much time with Judas as Jesus did. But you know what? No matter what Judas was going to do and no matter what Judas did do, Judas could not shake the love of Jesus off of him. Do you hear me tonight? Are you with me? Judas could not do anything bad enough that Jesus would stop. Loving him. No matter how bad it was going to be, no matter what the difficulty was, no matter what. And, 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 and we do, we just get this idea that, but well, that's the way the story is supposed to play out. Yeah, so was the part of the story where Jesus was supposed to be beaten and marred and totally disfigured to the point of not even being recognizable as a person. That doesn't mean he was going, yippee, it's part of the story. He was still in physical human form. And in physical human form, knowing Judas would stab him in the back, Jesus did not treat him any different for three and a half years 
than he did any of his other closest friends. Knowing what was going to come. I believe there's two proofs from this account of Jesus' last 24 hours that show us that Jesus never stopped loving Judas. The first is right here in our passage here in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 20 to verse 22. It's that passage we just read. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And deep being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely it's not me, Lord. Surely I'm not going to do that, am I? If Jesus would have treated Judas any different in, the, in those three years, three and a half years that he was interacting with all of his disciples. If Jesus, knowing that Judas was going to do this to him and he would have treated him any different whatsoever. If Jesus would have held Judas at arm's length, but not anybody else at arm's length. If Jesus would have treated Judas with more caution than anybody else. If when the idea came up for Judas to be the treasurer, are you following me? The money person of the group. And Jesus would have said, hey, guys, I really don't think he's a trustworthy kind of dude. When Jesus makes this announcement, hey, guys, one of you are going to betray me. Everybody went, whoop, we know who that is. Jesus tipped us off a long time ago. He, he, he's been acting weird toward this guy. He's acted different toward him than anybody else. They would have had no problem pointing their finger and saying, Judas is the one. But that's not how they responded, was it? Who? We all love you. We, we, we all, Jesus, it's not me, is it? The second proof that we have is in John chapter 13. So when we find Jesus in the upper room with his disciples and they're sharing the Passover meal. And in John chapter 13 and verse 23, it says there was reclining on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And that's why John always referred to himself. So we know John is right there with Jesus. And Simon Peter gestured at him. If you're right next door to him, you don't have to gesture, do you? Can't you just kind of go, hey, John. Right. But from across the way, he's going, hey, John, John, what's he gesturing for? He's gesturing. He said, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. John, you're one of his closest. John, man, you're always right there at Jesus' side. Who's he talking about? And he, John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, Who is it? And Jesus then answered. That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon, his It doesn't say that he got up and went across the table. If I'm reclining. And one disciple is here. And another disciple is here and I dip the bread and I hand it to him. That means he's right there at my left hand. If I understand the scene correctly, Judas, because he's at his left hand in a traditional Jewish festival setting such as the Passover. The guest of honor was always seated to the left of the host. 
Do you hear me tonight? The guest of honor was always seated next to the host. The place to the left of the host was for the person that had been invited by the host to sit on his left side. Everyone understood when the host invited someone to sit on their left side, they were paying them great homage and great respect. They loved that person. A person never took the position to the left of the host without being invited to sit there. On that table at Passover, there would have been a dish and it would have been filled with bitter herbs and vinegar and salt, dates, figs and raisins. Some water would have been poured into that dish and it would have been mashed together by the host and created a form of dip. And to show great honor and to show great love, excuse me, for the guest of honor, the host would have dipped the bread into that mixture and he would have physically given it to the one that he loved. When Jesus dipped the bread and he gave it to Judas, he was demonstrating to him that night, I believe. That no matter how far in the process that Judas had gone in betraying him. He could not shake off the love of Jesus. Judas was heading down the wrong path. Judas was heading down the wrong direction. Judas was making a decision that wasn't going to be good for him. And in the last moments before he makes that decision, Jesus Jesus is doing everything to show him, I love you. Sit here on my left side. Judas, I love you. I've known for a long time that you're making a mistake, but I don't want to lose you. Judas, I know you're headed down a path that's going to cause me pain. But Judas, listen, I want to give you a chance. I I love you. I still accept you. I still receive you. If you'll just repent of your sins and take up your cross daily and follow me, you can stop this slide in the wrong direction. And you can go from having a physical relationship with me to having a spiritual relationship with me. But that's not what Judas chooses, is it? Matthew 26, verse 7, excuse me, 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Judas did not have to kiss Jesus that day. He very easily could have just pointed and said, hey, guys, that guy right there, that's the one. Hey, when we get up there, I'm just going to kind of nod my head and the guy I nod my head at. That's the one. I mean. He didn't have to kiss him. But man, Judas was playing this out to the very end, wasn't he? I mean, to the very last minute, Judas was holding on to that physical relationship and not that spiritual relationship. It's pretty interesting, the word kiss that's used there. 
Kataphileo is the word in the Greek. Kata, it's it's a word that means from or coming out of. Phileo, we know what that means, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. From love. Coming out of love. It carries the context of that Judas literally went up and repeatedly he kissed him on the cheek. Man. He's a dastardly guy. It's no wonder that we don't name our kids that. But listen to how Jesus responds to him in this passage. I mean, Jesus is doing everything that he can Showing him his love. Showing him you can't shake off my love. And Jesus says, friend. He doesn't say, you scoundrel. He doesn't say, you sorry, no good for nothing. I know what you're doing. I know you're playing a game. I know you're stabbing me in the back. He was resigned to God's will for his life and it didn't matter Who carried that out? But there is something very interesting in this word friend that we find here. The most common or normal word in the Greek language for friend is philos. Kataphileo, a kiss comes out of love. It comes out of for someone that I love. I have an appreciation. I have a brotherly kindred to. Philos is the Greek word for that kind of friend. That's the one that you have... That bond, that relationship that's far more than just a physical acquaintance. And subsequently, Jesus doesn't use the word philos when he refers to Judas. Jesus said to him, friend, heteros. It's the word acquaintance. Judas was still a physical friend of Jesus. Not a spiritual friend of Jesus. When he went out and hung himself and he died. But it wasn't because Jesus took his love away from him. It's because Judas rejected his love. I've shared with you each night as we come into our study that we're studying these last 24 hours of Jesus Right before his resurrection, not just so we can get some head knowledge and some insight, and though we're getting some of that. The reason we're on this journey is because we want practical application. We're trying to unearth what we can get out of this more than just understanding the story. In the sermon tonight, I see there's two applications, and it comes out of the title of tonight's sermon. The kiss of death. Even when we betray Jesus, he never stops loving us. I wonder tonight if you're just a physical acquaintance or are you a spiritual friend of Jesus? If you're just a a physical acquaintance at this point, and as we've kind of walked through tonight and we talked about how that there's a test that we take that shows whether or not we have a physical relationship, excuse me, a spiritual relationship. And you recognize I'm, I'm just that physical relationship with Jesus. 
If you walk out this building tonight, then you're betraying Jesus just like Judas did. Judas was confronted with the fact that he only had a physical relationship. He did not have a spiritual relationship with Jesus. And in God's infinite wisdom and in God's plan for eternity, he placed Judas right beside Jesus to Jesus to the very end so that Judas could continue to understand his need to move into a spiritual relationship. And Judas said no. And as a result, he spent eternity separated from God because he was an acquaintance, not in a relationship. And if you walk out these doors, you walk out of this building tonight and. You miss up the opportunity or you miss the opportunity that God has given you, that he seated you in this building tonight and he seated you in this moment tonight. And he's giving you the opportunity to come to a clear understanding that you only have a physical relationship. You do not have a spiritual relationship and you die in that state. It's not going to be because Jesus does not love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But for eternity, you're going to have to deal with the fact that you are only an acquaintance of Jesus. You don't have a relationship with him. If you're a spiritual friend tonight and you walk out of this building tonight harboring ill will or hatred or anger or some kind of feeling towards someone else. You're betraying Jesus just like Judas did. Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3, 4, and 5. What was Jesus' attitude when it came to someone that stabbed him in the back? I'm going to love him to the very end. Be on the alert. Stand firm in your faith. Act like men. Be strong. But let everything you do be done in love. This is how people will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Bow your heads with me tonight. Tonight we're going to sing that song again. Oh, how he loves me so. And as you sing those words and those words resonate in your heart and they resonate in your mind, I'm going to ask you to continue to ask yourself the question, do I have a physical relationship or do I have a spiritual relationship? And if I just have a physical relationship, I understand, oh, how he loves me so. That he endured what he did in those last 24 hours he accepted the cup. He, he accepted God's will so that I could have eternal life. Then I'm going to ask you to not leave out of here betraying that opportunity. 
to make him the Lord and Savior of your life. If you're tonight and you have that spiritual relationship and you begin to sing those words, Oh, how he loves me so. And you begin to look at that cup that you have tonight. And I know you don't want to drink it. And I know you don't want to do it. And you're struggling with that tonight. Just like Jesus in that garden struggled. With the cup that the Father, the will that the Father had that He was asking Him to do. And, and, and He wanted that cup to pass. But finally, He just came down and said, The cost is too great for me not to say yes. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Oh, how He loves me. Don't betray Jesus tonight. If I can be a help, if I can journey with you, I'll be down at the front. If you need to come pray, whatever you need to do tonight. Let's be able to leave out of here. Friends of Jesus and not just acquaintances. Father, I pray that your perfect will will be able to be complete in all of our lives. I pray that we will... Be open, Holy Spirit, to what you speak into our heart. And not just be hearers of your word, but doers.